Child support is a discretionary jurisdiction. The court and the agency under section 117 subsection 4 and 5 has a great deal of discretion when determining someone's income. Largely, taxable income is ignored and the court will lift the corporate whale and see really what's going on and determine a man's child support based upon the fundamental actual reality of what is going on in that man's business and financial affairs. His taxable income affairs are largely irrelevant once it gets into court or in the agency's administrative review process. You're listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to run and grow your firm. Welcome to the first episode of 2023, episode 372 of Text Talks, the episode about PSI and child support assessments. This is Heidi Robson. Big news, DocuSign has come on board, so this is the first episode of Text Talks, sponsored by DocuSign. A warm welcome to DocuSign. Thank you for supporting Text Talks and with that, supporting you, our listeners. So now for the first time, let me do the official introduction and thank you to DocuSign for sponsoring this episode. I hope you got a bit of a break and were able to relax and think and plan ahead. Today, let's talk about PSI, so PSI as in personal services income, PSI in child support assessments. How is PSI handled in child support assessments? Do you just follow the PSI tax rules? And to answer that question, let me just quickly rejig your memory about those PSI tax rules. As you know, for tax purposes, the main issue around PSI is the use of companies and trusts to park PSI. Yes, sole traders can have PSI issues as well if they employ associates, etc. But the real music for PSI is when companies and trusts are used to park PSI income. This parking of income and then funneling the income to lower tax rates, that really is the issue around PSI for tax purposes. So to keep the PSI within the company or trust, you need to qualify as a PSB, a personal services business. You need to qualify as a PSB to stop PSI from just draining straight out of the company or trust return into the relevant ITR. If you like, imagine the company or trust as a bucket with lots of holes in the bottom. So whenever you pour personal services income into this bucket, it will drain straight out unless you have a PSB. Having a PSB will seal the holes in the bucket and allow you to keep the income within the company or trust. And as you know, whether you have a PSB or not depends on a couple of tests, the PSI rules. For the PSI rules, they're basically two doors and you need to fit through one of them if you want to qualify as a PSB and keep the income in the company or trust. The first door has a big 75% written over it, or maybe you can also write results test over it. You need to pass the results test for at least 75% of your PSI. That's it. That's all. The other door is more complicated. The other door has a big 80% plus one written over it. 80% plus one. So you start with the 80% test, less than 80% of your PSI must come from one entity and its associates. But then you also need to pass one more test. And that's why it says 80% plus one. You must pass either the unrelated clients test or the employment test or the business premises test. You need to pass at least one of these. And if you do, you have a PSB and all is well. The income can stay within the company or trust. 
So these are the PSI routes for tax purposes. And of course, you're very familiar with them. But what about child support assessments? What about if you pass the PSI rules for tax purposes and so you have a PSB? So for tax, all is good. You have sealed the bottom of the leaky bucket. But does that also apply to child support assessments? Does it mean that your child support assessment is then based on just the little bit of income that trickles from your PSB into your ITR via wages or dividends? That is the question we will discuss today, PSI in child support assessments. And that is a big issue because it would save you, or let me say it differently, it would reduce your child support payments significantly if you can basically hide behind the PSI tax routes. And so now we will come to the second part of this intro. And you might be wondering, why is there a second part? And the answer is because I just got back. So there wouldn't have been enough time to prepare the list of questions, do the interview, trim, edit, show notes, speaker profile. A lot of work goes into an episode that doesn't really meet the eye. So I had to prepare this before I left. And I did. I prepared the whole of February in December. And so now in February, I can prepare March. The only thing is that I had COVID in December. So when I recorded the second part of this intro. I had COVID and you will hear it. And so it will be very clear. But of course, it doesn't matter. So here is the second part of the intro regarding PSI in child support assessments. And here's my voice just recovering from COVID. It doesn't sound as bad anymore as it sounded yesterday. How is personal services income, in short PSI, how is PSI treated in child support assessments? If you pass the PSI test under tax law and hence you have a PSB, a personal services business, is that accepted for child support assessments? In other words, if you make it under tax law, does that also get you out of the rain for child support? That is the question to Simon Bacon of Mensby and Scott in Melbourne. Simon Bacon is a child support lawyer and you might remember our previous interviews with Simon in episode 281 about child support payments and 309 about child maintenance trusts. If you are new to child support, please listen especially to episode 281. In this episode today, we talk about the child support agency to keep things simple. But let me just quickly elaborate on this. There are two government agencies that manage child support, the Department of Social Services and Services Australia. The Department of Social Services is in charge of policy, so the theoretical stuff, the theory stuff. So they provide the policy, the framework, how it should all work. Or in their words, start of quote, administration of the child support legislation and works to develop and improve child support policy to enable more effective delivery of the scheme, end of quote. So that is the Department of Social Services. And then there is Services Australia. They manage Centrelink and Medicare, but they also manage child support. So they do the practical stuff, the hands-on stuff. So when you apply for a child support assessment or a change of an assessment, then you deal with Services Australia. They collect the payment from one parent and pass it on to the other parent. So we just say child support agency in this interview, but technically we mean Services Australia. So let's cross right over now. Here's Simon Bacon of Mensby and Scott in Melbourne. The first thing to always note is that uh, child support law and tax law share a lot of the same DNA. When the Child Support Agency came into existence, 
1987, it was actually a branch of the tax office. Uh, the child support registrar, for instance, was known as the Deputy Commissioner of Taxation, open bracket, child support, closed bracket. So the two acts have got a lot of common ancestry. But over the years, they've departed company to a certain amount. There was much criticism labelled at the child support scheme about 15 years ago by payers of child support who said largely child support is just a form of taxation. It was administered by the tax office. It was collected in the same way that uh, tax was collected. And a lot of payers got upset and said, well, this isn't about my children. This is just about Commonwealth revenue. I'm paying money to the Commonwealth government and it's not child support at all. So over time, the systems have diverged. Nowadays, for instance, the child support registrar is actually administered through the Department uh, of Human Services and not the tax office. And the treatment of personal services income is one way in which the two schemes have departed company. Now, the child support formula starts by simply using a payer's taxable income. But if one of the parties is unhappy at the outcome that that produces because there's a personal services component, for instance, dad, who's normally dad who pays child support, is earning his money through a company and it's appearing as though he's not being dealt with properly by the tax system via the personal services aspect of it. He's directing most of his income into the corporate structure, for instance, and not paying the same amount of income tax on it than otherwise he would have to. If someone is unhappy with the way that uh, their child support is being treated because of personal services income, that person can apply to the court or the child support agency for what is called a departure from the administrative assessment. Now, that departure occurs under Section 117 of the Child Support Assessment Act, and in particular, Section 117.2c of the Child Support Assessment Act. And it's fair to say the way child support deals with this issue of personal services income is far simpler than the way the tax office deals with it. Essentially, this issue is left to the court's discretion. If we look at Section 117.2c of the uh, Child Support Assessment Act, what it says is that the court can depart from someone's taxable income when assessing child support because of the income property and financial resources of that parent. So rather than any of the complicated tests that the tax office uses in relation to personal services income, the child support scheme is far simpler. It just leaves the issue up to the court's discretion. Now, I thought one good way of tackling this would be to go through some of the more well-known cases. I've got three of them I'd like to run through if I could. Three picked out uh, that are broadly representative of what's going on. They're not all involving personal services income, but they're instances where you can see how the court approaches this in a very simplistic way. Can I just ask you a very fundamental question, which I'm embarrassed to ask because it shows a complete lack of how this whole child support really works. And that is, let's say we have two families and in one family, the dad earns $100,000 and in the other family, the dad earns $50,000. And then accordingly, the uh, child support assessment for the uh, higher earning dad, let's say, is 20000 a year. And for the lower earning dad is $10,000 a year. 
just taking numbers out of the air. Does this now mean that the first mother gets 20,000 and the second mother gets 10,000? Or does what the dad pays has actually nothing to do with what the mother actually receives? No, what the father pays is sent to the mother. So in those examples, one mother would receive 20 and one mother would receive 10. But there's a complex interaction with the uh, welfare system here. Most mothers, and generally it's mothers who receive child support, most mothers receive something from Centrelink for their children. And that's family tax benefit A and B. Yes, correct, correct. Now, the reason we have a child support scheme really has not got a great deal to do with children. The reason we have it is to protect the Commonwealth's revenue position, or in this case, its expenditure position. Now, in that first example of the dad paying $20,000 per annum in child support, assuming mum receives her full family tax allowance, the family tax allowance is going to be reduced by about half of that, so by about $10,000 per annum. The idea where mum and dad separate is to make the fathers, who generally pay child support, pay for their children and not the taxpayer. So in that first example, dad pays $20,000 to the child support agency, the agency remits that full $20,000 to the mother, but then the child support agency tells Centrelink what has just happened, and Centrelink reduces the mother's family tax benefit by about $10,000. Now, exactly how much her benefit gets reduced by depends on the circumstances of her case. I mean, some women don't receive family tax benefit because they earn too much or they've repartnered with somebody who's wealthy. But in the classic situation... When a dollar gets paid in child support, about 50 cents gets reduced from this family tax benefit payment made to the mother. So in the first example, you gave, although mum gets $20,000 per annum in child support, it actually costs her 10000 in family tax benefits, so she's really only getting 10000 Good. So that means whatever the dad pays goes to the mother the family tax benefit A and B is like a safety net. So if the child support is high enough, then the mother doesn't receive any family tax benefit A and B. But if the child support is not high enough to ensure that the child is adequately looked after, then the family tax benefit comes in and basically fills the gap. Correct. It's a safety net. Perfect. Great. So then we can go to your three cases, how personal services income is treated under Section 117 of the Child Support Assessment Act. Okay, so let's just recap. The child support system is a very simplified approach to this issue. In fact, you don't find the phrase personal services income in the Child Support Act at all. All the Child Support Act says is that someone's child support is going to be assessed on their taxable income, and if there's something going on with the taxable income, some unfair manipulation, the court or the child support agency is entitled to vary the amount of child support paid based on very broad criteria. And those criteria, you will recall, are because of the income, property and financial resources of either parent. So this whole personal services income on one level in child support are furphy. The issue just doesn't come up. The only issue comes up is how will the court exercise its discretion in cases where a payer has manipulated his or her income so as to minimise the tax payable? So that basically means as long as the mother doesn't go to court, we follow the tax rules. 
So yes, if exactly. the father qualifies under the PSI rules for PSB, then all is well. Only the actual wage from the company to him will go into his child support assessment. The only problem is if the mother takes him to court and the court starts drilling into what's actually happening in this company, then there might be a problem, even though the criteria for tax are met, there might be a problem with respect to how the um, department is going to treat this. There would be a problem for the payer. The payee probably wouldn't see it as a problem. She would see it as a benefit. Yes, yes, of course. I'm talking from the viewpoint of the payer because it is usually the payer who's setting it up yes. through a company to try to get his PSI protected. Yes. And typically what that means is that his personal income is relatively low. Often it's at the point where the corporate rate equals the individual rate, which is in the $30,000 per annum. And that can often produce unfair outcomes for child support purposes. So I've got these three cases. I think they'll be very instructive. And in particular, the first is perhaps the best one, Bassing, Thwaite and Lean, a case from 1992. For those of your listeners who wish to drill right into it and look at it properly, reported at 16 Family Law Reports, page uh, 918. Now, this case involved an airline pipe who was earning a considerable amount of income as an airline pilot, but also ran a hobby farm. And the hobby farm ran at a loss. And uh, the pilot was reducing his airline income by the loss in the hobby farm business and produced a very low taxable income. Yeah, that's a tax issue anyway, to start with. But good, let's put that aside. Yes, yes. This case is an older case. No doubt the tax aspect of it has varied over the last 30 years, but the child support aspect is still very, very relevant. And at page 920, I'll quote you about two paragraphs which are very instructive. The court in that case said, in substance, the trial judge was of the view that the proper rate of payment of child support should be based upon the father's income as a pilot rather than his income after the deduction of the farming losses. Justice Barry further took into account the father's capital assets. His honour observed, the respondent is perfectly entitled to arrange his financial affairs as he wishes. What he cannot do is avoid his responsibilities as a parent by incurring considerable losses in a business venture when he clearly has the capacity to make a considerable profit. He could sell the farm, invest the proceeds and receive regular periodic payments in a variety of investments. If he did not have the farm or if the farm did not operate as a business at all, is largely in excess of $100 per week. And the judge used that reasoning to increase this pilot's child support. Effectively, what the court did was ignore the tax situation and say, well, what's fundamentally going on here? He's earning his income as a pilot, and if he wants to go and elect to make losses in this loss-making farm, he could do that, but he can't use those losses to reduce his uh, child support assessment. So that's one good instructive case. Another good instructive case is a case called Shearer and Benson. For those who want to look it up, 2011, Federal Magistrates Court of Australia Family Law Cases, number 623. Now, in that case, the court said, when a person conducts their business through an intermediary company or trust, it is proper to lift the corporate veil to that person with regards to the determination of a parent's income for child support purposes. So we can see there the same principle and operation. 
the court is going to ignore what's going on from a tax point of view and look fundamentally at what's happening in a practical level in determining whether this man can afford to pay uh, increased child support. In another case, uh, this case called Costa and Fairbank, 2010, Federal Magistrates Court of Australia Family Law, Case 39, the court said, the term financial resource in the light of the objects of the Assessment Act, which is the Child Support Assessment Act, should be broadly defined and refers to any financial benefit that could enhance the capacity of the parents to provide support for their children. Now, in that case, the husband was an employee of his new wife's business. He was an employee on wages, and the court ignored that situation and attributed the full business income from the new wife's uh, business to the payer of child support as his personal income. So those three cases are broadly definitive of how the court deals with this issue of personal services income. It just doesn't care about it or any of the other complexities of tax law. Sending your money overseas, putting it into a trust, whatever. The court is going to lift the corporate veil and just look at fundamentally what's going on. Often the situation is that dad separates from mum. Dad might be a plumber. He repartners with a new woman who knows nothing about plumbing. But all of a sudden, this new partner incorporates a plumbing business and employs the payer of child support in so-called her plumbing business on a very low wage. The plumbing company earns all the money, pays the payer of child support a very low income. The child support payer's income is suddenly very low for tax and therefore child support purposes. But the court will ignore that. The court says, well, what's fundamentally going on here? This man was always a plumber. This new woman whom he's partnered with knows nothing about plumbing, although it's her business. We are going to ignore that situation and just attribute all of the income to the plumber, the payer of child support. And what about if the company has several income streams? So one income stream is for, for example, for consulting services. One income stream is an actual business. And, you know, there are several people in this company and there are several income streams. Is it then still possible to pierce through this company? Well, the more people involved and the more income streams certainly makes it harder. For instance, if someone owns a couple of BHP, if a payer of child support owns a couple of BHP shares, there's no way BHP's income is going to be attributed to that particular payer. The court is going to have to carry out a process of trying to isolate the real income of the payer of child support from everything else that's going on. So if there are a number of partners or directors uh, or shareholders in this particular company, it's going to be a forensic exercise the court engages in to try and isolate this particular payer of child support's circumstances and try and deal with that alone. Yes. Do you know whether in the third case, the company that was in the new partner's name had no other income apart from the personal services income? Or do you know if the company also ran an actual business? I don't know that. The name of the case, as I say, was Shearer and Benson. It could be looked up. That was the second case, Shearer and Benson. But in the third case, Costa and Fairbanks, you mentioned that the company was in the new partner's name and that the company ran a business and then all income was attributed to the father. Yes, let me read out exactly what my notes say about that. His Honor, which is the judge, said a business run by the applicant payer's wife, so the payer of child supporters repartnered with a new wife, 
and in which the applicant was an employee could be considered as a financial resources in the hands of the payer. The income of the business was used to increase the payer's child support income. Look, this whole notion of personal services income, it's really not relevant for child support purposes at all. The, the court sitting in a child support case is not constrained by technical nuanced concepts like that. It just tries to lift the corporate veil and see exactly what's going on. And even if a man can um, arrange his affairs so that his company is not earning personal services income, that won't uh, protect him from a child support uh, application under Section 117. So in the third case, it was probably that the business was like the example you mentioned where the father is a plumber and suddenly the new partner is running a plumbing business and doesn't really know anything about plumbing. Yes. But I think if the um, company already had been running a business by the new partner and then the father is becoming an employee of that, then it's probably harder to separate the two. That's a bit different. That's sounding more like a bona fide situation where the new wife has been running this business for some time. I've often seen the court ask itself this question, who is the head and the brains of what's going on? So in the situation where the wife's running a plumbing company but doesn't know a hammer from a, a screwdriver, <laughs> um, clearly the head and the brains of it is the plumber. But if the wife's already running a company, a financial services company, a hairdresser, whatever, and the new the payer of child support joins that company as an employee, then it gets a lot more murky. So the court is really going to just ask itself the question, what's going on? The other tests in the Child Support Act under Section 117.4 and 5 are what is just and equitable and otherwise proper in all the circumstances, which gives the court a very wide discretion in these cases. It could really do anything at once, provided it's just and equitable and otherwise proper. And if the payer of child support has joined a pre-existing company owned by the wife, the new wife has been operating for a number of years and it looks legitimate, then it may not be that easy for the court to lift the corporate bail. So basically, whether something is PSI or PSB, etc., doesn't really matter at all under the Child Support Assessment Act once you go to court. As long as you're not at court, then whatever happens in the tax return, that is what it's going to go into your child support assessment. But once you're at the court, whatever happened beforehand with respect to tax rules doesn't matter at all. And the judges are just going to really drill deep into who is actually doing what. Yes. Now, that, of course, gives great flexibility to the law and it allows judges to do what is just, equitable and otherwise proper. But it's also very uncertain. No one really knows what a particular judge is going to do in a particular situation. So that outcome is correct, but it leaves litigants in the family court scratching their head as to whether they should settle cases or what a likely outcome will be before a judge. Great flexibility, but no certainty. Simon, can I ask you two more questions? The first one is, how often do mothers go to court? Is it something that happens all the time? It doesn't cost a lot? Or is it very costly and hence a big step to take the father to court? Right. Well, first of all, it's not just mothers who take fathers. Of course. Sometimes it's, it's, it's the, the other way around. Court cases are actually the exception rather than the rule. Before you can go to court, you have to approach the child support agency 
and go through this process administratively first. The Child Support Agency has various internal review processes where they can apply both Section 117 of the Act and the, the jurisprudence behind that administratively. There's just a public servant sat in a room who looks at an application that's been lodged by mother or father to vary the child support. It's in the rare case these days where these cases actually get determined by a judge. If someone's unhappy about the child support agency decision, or if there's already a case on in court, maybe arguing about custody of children or property settlement, then you can go directly to court and have a court make a decision. So can the child agency already throw the taxable income out of the window and, you know, what we just discussed with yes, respect to the court? I see. So the child support agency can already do that. Yes. The agency has all the powers that the court has. It applies the same section 117 too. In the old days, before 1992, if you were unhappy with a, an administrative assessment of child support, which is what is called when child support is based on a person's taxable income, you had to go to court. But it proved to be expensive. It proved to be slow and stressful. And so the Act uh, was changed and it's been constantly uh, amended over time so that most of this work now happens back at the child support agency. Most of these decisions are actually made administratively. It's called change of assessment. If a party is unhappy with their assessment of child support, they fill in a form, send it off to, to child support agency, and it's all looked at administratively by a public servant. Much cheaper, much quicker, but a lot of lawyers complain that you can't subpoena any documents, you can't cross-examine any witnesses, you can't really get stuck into the case because it's, it's not really a case, it's just a public servant sat in a room somewhere reading paperwork. But that agency process has the advantage of being quick and cheap. So it's not just the court who can throw the taxable income out of the window and look under the hood. It's also the child support agency that can throw the taxable income out of the window. But the agency doesn't have subpoena of documents, etc. So it has to kind of rely on what it's being told, whereas the court would have to look at actual facts and documents. So if the agency makes a decision in its review that is basically just based on he said, she said, and then one of the parties is not happy about that, then they could go to court. Yes, effectively. Now, that's a very simplified um, expression of it, but yes, that's right. The agency itself can issue what are called Section 161 notices, which are subpoenas, and often the agency will do that to the payer's bank to try and get a gauge of how much is flowing through his or the company's bank accounts. But it's not a judicial process. There are no lawyers fighting it out in court. It's a much more relaxed, quick and uh, cheap process. The child support agency can request bank statements. Yes, they can. And in fact, that's one thing that they will often do. Otherwise, it's uh, he said, uh, she said. And in particular, what the child support agency likes to do is request any applications for credit that the payer of child support is made with a bank or a credit card company to see what the payer is telling the bank or the credit card company what his his actual income is. You can imagine somebody applying for credit card is going to maximise their appearance of being able to pay back the debt and make themselves look more like uh, someone who's in a position to pay back any monies which are advanced them. They'll often put their case at its highest and the agency and for the court itself when it uh, does these cases, an application for credit is like the holy grail. There you have the payer selling himself to the 
credit provider telling the credit provider what his real income is. And I've won many a case just by finding an application for credit where the payer who has a taxable income of $30,000 per annum is telling the bank when he applies for a mortgage he earns $200,000 per annum. Once you say that on an application for credit, you're really stuck with it. There's a principle in the family law called Elias Principle after a famous case. And it says if someone goes off to a credit provider and tells the credit provider he earns $200,000 per annum, he can't then tell the agency that he's only earning $30,000 per annum. In this internal review, do you find often there is a little bit of bias towards one side or the other? Or do you find this internal review is usually quite fairly done? Look, the child support agency will tell you they are a disinterested party. They will say that all we do is apply the legislation. But in my experience and uh, in the experience of a lot of my clients, there is a vested interest. The child support agency is tasked by the government with raising as much child support as it can so that the Centrelink arm of the government pays out the least amount of Centrelink it has to. It's a bit like putting Dracula in charge of the blood bank, I think. The agency exists to collect child support and I do sometimes get a feeling that when it exercises its discretion the agency is subconsciously favoring the party who is the recipient of child support. So that means it's usually in the interest of the father to take the matter to court because the court is probably less biased than the agency. Yes of course in our system The judiciary is one of the three branches of government that is completely separate. The child support agency is part of the same administrative branch of the government that wants to collect the child support. When we look at this company that has several parties and several income streams coming into the company, what is important? Is it important that the company has several shareholders, that the company has several directors, or where do you need to have diversity, to make it harder to basically allocate everything to the father? Ideally, what you would want is a company that pre-existed the father's child support difficulties. So no one can say that the company was created solely to be a vehicle for the payer to reduce his child support obligations. So there's that pre-existing aspect. Secondly, you would want to have a number of directors and a number of shareholders You would want them to have technical expertise in what the company does. For instance, we were talking before about a plumbing company. You'd want them all to know how to dig a trench and change a downpipe so that it can't be said that only the payer of child support is head on the brains of it. You want to diversify that. You'd also want a diversified source of income as well. If you could, for instance, have a building company with money coming in from plumbing, electrical work, carpentry work, anything to distance this particular payer from where the money's coming from. So this payer could say, hey, I'm a plumber. I don't know anything about building a frame. A one-third of this company's business comes from carpentry work, people building house frames. How can that income be allocated to me? It's got nothing to do with me. Just about putting space and distance between what the payer does and what the company does. Child support is a discretionary jurisdiction. The court and the agency under section 117 subsection 4 and 5 has a great deal of discretion when determining someone's income. 
largely taxable income is ignored and the court will lift the corporate veil, or as you put it, Adi, look under the hood and see really what's going on and determine a man's child support based upon the fundamental actual reality of what is going on in that man's business and financial affairs. His taxable income affairs are largely irrelevant once he gets into court or in the agency's administrative review process. Welcome back. In the interview, we touch on the family tax benefit. As you know, there is A and B, family tax benefit A and family tax benefit B. For both, you need to have the child in your care for at least 35% of the time. So if you have the child for less than that, you don't receive either family tax benefit, neither A nor B. But it also means that both mother and father can receive family tax benefit A and B. So if you share care, for example, and you both have the children 50-50 or at least 65-35, then both of you can receive family tax benefit A and B as long as your income is low enough. The thresholds for part A are pretty low, so child support payments will easily affect part A. But now coming back to the topic of today, PSI and child support assessments, just to summarize, if the PE doesn't request a change of assessment, then the payer's tax return is the Bible. However you treated your PSI and your tax return, that is how it goes into your child support assessment if you are the payer. So if you receive PSI into a company or trust and you qualify for PSB, then only the wages this company or trust pays you will go into your child support assessment as long as there is no request for a change. But if there is a request for a change, then your tax return flies out of the window and Services Australia or the court can assess your income in whatever way they see fit. Services Australia is meant to have no bias, but is rumored to be on the PE side, so the side of the parent who receives child support. Simon Bacon uses the example of being like Dracula, being in charge of a blood bank. A court, on the other hand, is likely to be more evenly keeled. So to make this more simple, let's assume there's a mother and a father and the father pays child support to the mother and the father receives personal services income paid to his company or trust, but the company or trust qualifies as a PSB. So only the wages the company or trust pays to the father go into his tax return. So if you are the father, it is better to avoid a change of assessment and to stick to your tax return. But if you are the mother, it is better to request a change of assessment and to get the full income within the company or trust onto the assessment. But bear in mind that Services Australia will only accept a request for change of assessment if you have a genuine reason to suspect that something is not right in the tax return. So you can't just request a change of assessment because you're curious. So if you are the mother, a change of assessment will work in your favor if there is PSI hidden in a company, if you are the father, you're much better to stick to your tax return and to avoid a change of assessment. If there is a request to change the assessment, then if you are the father, it is better to push past the review by Services Australia, since possibly biased, and to go to court. If you are the mother, it is better to accept whatever comes out of the review with Services Australia, since they are likely to be on your side, at least a lot more than a court. So that is a rough summary of what Simon Bacon covered in this episode. I hope I put it into the right words and I hope I don't get an email from Simon saying I got it all wrong. 
In the next episode, episode 373, we will look at Services Australia's powers to subpoena information. You know, how much can you refuse disclosure of information if you are the payer, if you are the accountant involved? We will talk about all this. It's not 100% clear yet what this episode will look and feel like, but we will get there. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to DocuSign for their support. And I will need to get used to this. This is very new. Bye for now and see you in the next episode. Mm-hmm.